Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It is the 8th of February, 2022. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. You might be brand new to Faith Radio. You might be brand new to the Faith Radio app or to MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome. Welcome, 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 welcome. We are seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the matters of the day so that Christians like you and me can walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus. My real goal, like great part of my real goal here, is that neither you nor I would embarrass Jesus as we are out there in the world today representing him, carrying his name, Christ, as Christians in the world, um, seeking to, I mean, genuinely expose others to the reality of who God is and that God is great and God is good. Um, So there you go. That's what I'm up to. That's who I am. That's uh, what I'm doing here each and every day. Thank you for including me in this portion of your day. What are we doing? What are we up to? You can always let me know where you are, what's happening where you are, your prayer concerns, um, things that you want to say about what we're talking about here. You can always communicate with me during the show. We have a text line. It's open all the time, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. Something really um, fun happening this week that I don't want you to miss. My colleague Susie Larson is going to be doing a live stream event this Thursday, February the 10th, hosting a special video live stream event at 7 p.m. Central. So 8 p.m. for those of you on the East Coast, I don't know, backwards math, 5 p.m. for those of you on, um, yeah, surely you're not even up yet on the West Coast. But if you were up already, then it's going to be 5 p.m. Central uh, on February the 10th. Susie Larson's uh, Love's Power to Heal video live stream event with uh, Dr. Tony Spurl. And so they're going to take your health questions and they've got a bunch of stuff to give away. So if you subscribe to the Faith Radio YouTube channel or follow us uh, on our Facebook page, then you're going to get the little alert. You're going to, you know, know exactly how to tune in and participate. So go ahead and do that. Go to MyFaithRadio.com, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Facebook, and that way you'll get all the info about events like this, the live stream that, that we're having this coming Thursday evening with Susie Larson. All right, one quick update on a story that we covered earlier, um, actually late last week, and that is this story out of West Lafayette, Indiana. We had talked about the city council that ha- that was looking at a proposal um, that in the city of West Lafayette, it would be criminalized behavior for parents, um, for Bible counselors, for church pastors to teach 
what the Bible says about human identity, um, male and female. He created us in his image and human sexual relationships as defined by God as between one biological man and one biological woman in something we call marriage. Um, So that was what was under consideration. The language was condemnation of so-called conversion therapy, which, by the way, everyone condemns. Um, And so what happened is that pastors and other Christians got activated. They uh, let the city council know that nobody actually supports the kind of conversion therapy that they were talking about. That's not what is happening when people are offering biblical counsel in the context of families or in the context of uh, counseling in churches or Christian um, Christian counselors, you know, out there who you might Google and find, um, you know, in, in terms of your community resources. And so um, ultimately, now I will acknowledge under threat of a lawsuit against the city, but the city council members who put forward the proposal actually withdrew it. And this is an example of how direct engagement by pastors and parents and Christian counselors and Christian schools um, can organize around the truth, can communicate the truth, can communicate what they are doing, can communicate the religious freedom implications um, that a proposal would, uh, you know, would threaten. Um, so there you go. Make your concerns known to uh, to those. Do so in a way that honors the system. And in this case, we just want to celebrate that uh, that proposal was withdrawn in the city of West Lafayette, Indiana. All right. Uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is going to join us next. We're going to talk about a number of headlines across the country um, related to the intersection of politics and our faith. Uh, Maybe I'll lead off with this. Would you scan your face in order to submit your tax returns? That was actually something the IRS wanted each and every one of us to do this year. They wanted to require all taxpayers to verify our our identities through facial recognition software. Yeah, yeah, they've uh, scrapped those plans, but uh, just backburnered them for the future. Interesting, interesting. Who would you scan your face for? Dr. Mark Caleb Smith up next. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is here from Cedarville University. Hey, welcome back, sir. Hey, Carmen. How are you doing today? I am. I am well, although I have already misspoken at least once and been called out on it. Uh, apparently, it is Dr. Troy Spurl, not Tony. But in my defense, that starts with a T and ends with a Y and is a four-letter name. So that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> you give people the text line and, you know, it's good because they're awake and they're using it. So there you have it. Thank you, uh, Rosella, for correcting me. All right. Um, let's talk about redistricting. Remind us what redistricting is, what's going on with redistricting across the country and how it kind of kills competition. So redistricting. Uh, so every 10 years we have a census. The Constitution requires us to have a census. We count the number of, uh, of people in America and once we have that information in place, then our legislative districts around the country are redrawn. So uh, generally state legislatures, so here in Ohio, the General Assembly, uh, is responsible for drawing those legislative maps. And so this, this is for things like state house, state senate, 
And of course, uh, what we're going to talk about probably is the U.S. House uh, and those uh, those congressional seats as well. And so you draw those districts, um, and as it shouldn't surprise us, political parties that are in power uh, generally draw those districts to benefit themselves. And so they draw the boundaries, you know, due to uh, elevated technology, very accurate maps, and good software. They can draw these districts in such a way to really um, maximize their party standing, uh, especially when it comes to how many seats they hold in these legislative bodies. And so what it really does, and this is true for Republicans and Democrats, uh, what it really does ultimately is that it makes incumbents safe and it lowers the number of competitive seats we have. And I think there are a lot of significant problems that flow from this. I mean, I I know that it benefits Republicans and Democrats and people in a certain state may like it for their state for whatever reason, Um, but ultimately it really reduces competition and it creates a lot of districts that just simply aren't competitive at all, where there's really very little contest to the general election. All right. I've been asked, why are there 435 U.S. House districts? My answer to that question, having, you know, used my Googler, is that uh, that number was finalized and uh, became a part of the Permanent Apportionment Act in 1929. But it has been the number since 1911. There you go. Yeah, that's that's, that's right. And what Congress I have on can that. change that. You know, if they want to have a thousand members of the U.S. House, they could do that if they wish. Yeah, but I think that's not likely. All right, so let's talk about, um, I mean, I'm in a district that is being redrawn. Um, right. Others others may find themselves in a district being redrawn as well. Um, I guess my concern, my personal concern is that it gets more and more fringy all the time um, right. because there's no chance that it's going to really be a competitive race. And so um, particularly if you have a primary, the the fringiest characters tend to get elected. Yeah, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of that politician. So you've won a a race, you're a member of the U.S. House, let's say, and you're in a district where it's going to vote 70, 75 percent for your party, whether it's Republican or Democratic. That means really the only contest that you're worried about uh, isn't the general election, it's the primary election. And so you need to make sure that you do whatever it takes to appeal to that core base of primary supporters in your party to make sure that they're happy with you. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're passing bills, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're solving problems, it means that they are happy with you. And so what can't you do? You can't compromise, you can't work with the other party Um, You can't do things that they might view as a betrayal. You can't make a hard vote that maybe your constituents don't agree with, but maybe in the end is the best for the country. And so you're exactly right. You end up with these uh, often fringy people serving in these seats because they're the safest person to put in that seat because they're going to be the most responsive. Uh, That doesn't mean that we're going to get problems solved. It doesn't mean that we're going to be able to work together to do things but it does mean there are lots of safe seats. You know, right now the estimation is there will be around 40 competitive seats out of 435 seats up in this November. And that number is just a staggering uh, number to think that overwhelmingly these people really aren't running in real contests in the fall. 
I heard a really interesting story out of Utah yesterday, and uh, maybe you and I can circle back around to this on a, in a future conversation. But Democrats in Utah are supporting former Republican Evan McMullen for the U.S. Senate seat there. He's running um, as an independent, but Democrats recognize a Democrat is not going to get elected, and so they would rather have a principled independent than than the Republican who is running um, for that same seat. So just think there's an interesting, interesting mix of conversations happening out there in terms of, um, yeah, what what the parties are doing, how they are organized in particular places, and, um, you know, and how people are thinking about uh, the upcoming election. That will take us, Mark, to a conversation about Mike Pence and the GOP and the RNC and the censures of Cheney and Kinzinger this week. Um, so let's talk about all that when we come back from a very brief break. We're talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and this is Faith Radio. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is at Cedarville University, so that is in Ohio. Does that have any influence upon you in terms of a game being played this weekend? For for me, it really doesn't. When I grew up in Indiana, (laughs) I grew up a Colts fan, uh, but I am surrounded by lots of rabid Bengals fans uh, who certainly are are on the edge of their seats already for Sunday's game. So I don't know who I really care so much about who wins that game on Sunday. I'm not sure I'll root for, frankly. Which my neighbors won't like to hear, but that's just the way it is. Yeah, I'm 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 rooting for the Bengals. I, I just because I I like their outfits. So there you go. Um, I know. See, it's not even a really good reason. Um, so let's talk about. I mean, I this is just like this crazy intersection of stories this week. Mike Pence, the GOP, the Republican National Committee censures of um, two seated members of Congress. Uh, uh, former President Trump's preemptive promise to pardon people who may may be convicted of crimes related um, to the one six uh, Capitol riots last year. I mean, oh, this has been a bit of a crazy week. Burn bags. I mean, this has been a bit of a crazy week on the Republican side of the aisle in terms of news. Yeah, I think I think that's the best description for it. Is it has been uh, amazing to sit and watch and. I mean, what it shows you, I think, obviously, is the Republican Party is still struggling. There's still divisions within the party. Um, <clears throat> clearly, President Trump is still very popular within the GOP, and he has a significant presence within the Republican National Committee. And they use their power to censor, as you said, uh, Kinzinger and Cheney, who are on the January 6th committee. They're Republicans. They're incumbent members of Congress. Kinzinger is not running for reelection. Uh, Cheney is running for re-election. Um, and so they've been censored by their own party for working with Democrats. Uh, and as you said, Mike Pence, on the same day, uh, Mike Pence made a public address where he contradicted the president and said that all that pressure that Trump had put on him to uh, overturn the election results, he said the president was wrong, that he didn't have the power to do that, um, and that he wasn't going to do that regardless. And in that same speech, you know, Pence called January 6th, a dark day for the republic. And so you have these different narratives that are coming out of really elite Republican circles. Uh, Chris Christie was on the news this weekend as well, sort of saying similar things that Pence was saying. And so it seems like maybe there's a growing movement, at least within a part of the GOP, to challenge President Trump's control of the party. Um, And of course, lots of reverberations from all those things sort of rippling through. Donors, 
activists and, and what they actually think about it. And all this is on the on the eve of a, of a midterm election where they're expected to do well. And so it's just a it's a remarkable thing for the party to be this divided when they when they have a chance to really make significant gains in November. So I think that for um, for Christians, you know, the truth matters. That's one of the things we need to keep in the forefront of our minds. Our emotions matter less than the truth. And so I think that for each and every one of us, the pursuit of the truth and all of this needs to remain remain in the forefront. Um, and I, it, so that will be my encouragement to each of us and all of us. Um, as we look toward the midterm elections and then ultimately toward a, a 2024 presidential election as well, there are progressives who are working very diligently to ramp up a particular uh, demographic. Can you tell us a little bit about what's being called codger power? <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a there's a, a movement, a group called the Third Act, and they're trying to rally progressive support with um, older Americans, um, as you said, calling it codger power to some extent. The 75 million people sort of fit this demographic, um, <clears throat> and they're trying to organize them to push toward progressive policy goals. And so, you know, we've had Neil Young make news recently, Joni Mitchell make news because the positions that they're taking against Spotify, and in some ways they're maybe emblematic of this of this movement. It's an interesting phenomenon, I think, because this third act idea, they're basically saying, we want you to return to your progressive roots. Because these people were activists in the 60s and the 70s, they tended to be very liberal, but then they become a little bit more conservative over time. And the goal here is, I think, to return them to where they used to be when they were young. Um, I, I'm not sure how that's going to go frankly. And there's an awful lot of division within that older demographic. Uh, I'm not, I don't think you can just drag them toward a progressive point of view, at least not right now. Uh, no, on the text line uh, right now, uh, at least one says, hey, we codgers, we always vote. There you go. That's right. <clears throat> so exactly. there you go. Um, on the Spotify note, uh, I was reading last night that there's a YouTube rival to Spotify, and that YouTube rival is called Rumble, and they have offered Joe Rogan $100 million over four years to leave Spotify. So um, let me just say that whatever's going on with Joe Rogan, he is just cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. He's just cashing yeah. in on it. So let's just recognize let's just recognize that as a part of that story. All right, we only have a couple of minutes to talk about this really actually major conversation topic, and that is Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. There is a piece called um, it's The Long Game, and it's in The New Yorker. Just talk with us about um, this conversation taking place about the long game for conservative justices. Yeah, the piece, it's an interesting piece, and I, I do encourage people to read it. Uh, it's definitely uh, anti-Amy Coney Barrett, I think, when you get right down to it. Uh, and the concern is that she's going to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, of course. But it's it's a really interesting view of her background, and it talks about how she's grown up and been part of this very conservative Christian legal culture, and that that seems to be affecting the way that she views the law and views the Constitution. Um, but I, I think for me, the most interesting part of the piece was her sort of her biography and how she's growing into becoming a symbol uh, for many different kinds of Americans. You know, the way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg became a symbol for many kinds of, of women. Amy Coney Barrett is a different kind of symbol. You know, a mother, not Ivy League educated, growing up in so-called flyover country in Louisiana and Indiana uh, throughout her life. Uh, not a prototypical Supreme Court justice. Uh, and I think she's going to become probably very popular 
uh, as she sits on the court. So uh, there is this long game at work where conservatives have just sort of said, you know what, if we can create enough justices and enough people, then over time we will shape the law and we will shape the court. And I think you, you got to argue that conservatives have been very successful, at least as it looks right now. People love her. I mean, people on, uh, you know, on the Christian and conservative side of the aisle in America love Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, if you're not already actively praying for her, um, put her on your prayer list. You know, she's the mom of seven. So let's just start with that. Uh, Pray for her husband. His name is Jesse. Um, Pray for their family. Pray for her health. Pray for, I mean, I just let's have this be a person that's in our prayers and on our prayer list um, that, you know, that God would lead her in all wisdom because he has certainly put her in a position of uh, of significant influence in the culture. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, as always, thank you so much. Carmen, it's my pleasure. Always good to talk to you and, and your listeners. You guys take care. Always good to talk with you as well. Um, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. talk for a minute about church. Hey, my name's Carmen LaBurge, by the way. If you're just now joining us, you are listening to Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. You can check out who we are and what we're doing at myfaithradio.com. If you're new to us, we'd love to send you a welcome pack. So go to myfaithradio.com or right there on the Faith Radio app, if that's where you're listening. Uh, And let us know that you're new to Faith Radio. Uh, We'd love to share some information and, well, frankly, some swag. So there you go. Uh, Literally a headline from yesterday about church. As Here's the headline. As fewer Americans attend church, can coffee shops fill the void? Let me just uh, give a strong reaction uh, and one word answer to that. that. That would be no. No. Church is not a coffee shop and coffee shops are not churches. And that's not to say that you and I can't enjoy rich fellowship with one another or study the Bible together in an environment like that. But when we talk about the church, we're talking about the body of Christ. We're talking about the household of faith. We're talking about the family of God. We're talking about Um, you know, what God talks about in the book of Acts. So if you want to understand who and what the church is, let me really encourage you to be reading through Acts with us. We are reading through the Bible, the book of Acts, during the month of February. Uh, We're on chapter 8 because today's February the 8th. But there are lots of reasons that you and I should not give up going to church, being a part of a community of believers. And then even as soon as I say that, um, I recognize that there are a lot of folks who, particularly over COVID, have ceased attending in person and instead you know, replaced that with online worship services. But you're still doing that independent of other people. And so I've been kind of looking for people out there in the culture who are doing a both and, who are keeping, you know, their foot in uh, actively participating in a local church you know, gathering together with a fellowship of believers, sitting under biblical teaching, all of that, and and also utilizing the onla- online resources that have proliferated under COVID and figuring out a way to keep the church small and simple and serving their families and discipling their own. And so I bring to you 
There should be a drum roll. Grace McJohnson, she has uh, developed something. They're just calling it Little Labs. So imagine that it's um, like an experiment of doing church the way you read about it in the book of Acts. We're going to talk with Grace McJohnson about Little Labs and micro church right there at home, even as you remain connected to your quote unquote big church in the community. So how are you doing church? How are you engaged in church? What does church look like and mean to you? We're going to have that conversation next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. There's a little mountain church in my thoughts of yesterday where friends and family gathered for the Lord. Well, we are very familiar with the idea of doing church differently, particularly in the midst of COVID. And Grace McJohnson has not only been thinking about doing church differently, she's been doing church differently for some time now. Grace, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I I like the way that you talk about not just being in a house or just being in a home, but actually your home or your house also as a church. So set up or cast the vision for what we're talking about today. Yeah, yeah. I've been a part of some some home church movements for a while. In fact, my dad is a pastor of a wonderful little house church community. And so I'm not unfamiliar with house churches, but I've been kind of tweaking what how that looks. And um, so, yes, the the gathering in the home itself is definitely a huge part of what I'm doing and um, what I've been blessed to do. But also the structure of the gathering itself has changed a little bit for me. And so by that, I mean, when we gather in our house, as we've, I've been doing with a group of people um, over COVID, we, we kind of share the leadership. So it's like we each bring a little tiny piece of church and it makes it much simpler. Um, I am a pastor and I have an MDiv, and, but yet I'm not the one preaching every week or doing everything um, as you would, even in some house churches, you know, like mm-hmm. my dad's church has a worship team. He's the pastor and he's really good at sharing, kind of sharing the leadership a little bit too, but you can meet in a home and still have sort of the same structure as a conventional church. And so that's something that I've really kind of had a revelation about over, over COVID is just the simplicity of the early church and first Corinthians 14, 20, 26, 12. I don't know. I'm getting mixed up. Somebody can find it um, where, where one person brings a song, one person brings a, um, a word, a, a revelation, mm. an instruction. So that's kind of how I'm structuring it. And so that's why I call it micro. Kind of like everything is small. Everyone brings something small. The, the gathering space is small. You're in your, your house, but you kind of bring a little piece. So even kids can get involved and it's really, really fun to see my three kids get involved each week. And it's, it's a lot of fun to see that that happen. So I feel like, Grace, that what you're talking about is something that feels very organic, and yet each part is planned by the individual who's who's bringing forward, let's say, a piece or a portion of the liturgy. I mean, although children might not think through what they're going to what they're going to pray. They may um, know that that's the part they're going to bring or if they're going to sing a song or something. I I think that recognizing that there's freedom in this, because I think that as Western Christians, we have certainly cultivated an understanding of what church, I'm going to put that in quote marks, what that 
looks like, where it meets, and what happens when you go there. Um, mm, talk with yep. us. Just talk with us about getting from that mindset to the place where it feels okay to me to simply get together and be devoted together to the apostles, teaching to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and mm. to prayer. Yeah, great wording of that question. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that it's necessary and good and right to have distinguished leaders. And I certainly don't want anyone to think that I'm suggesting that we just do away with the position of pastor or, um, you know, even elders or leaders in the church of any kind. However, I, I think we kind of have a misconception of, in evangelical Christianity of what what is actually biblical when we talk about the church gathering. And I appreciate your question because that's kind of what you're, you're asking is in my opinion is kind of where, why are we doing it this way? Why am I choosing to kind of focus on this? And I think as evangelicals, we, we highly value the Bible. We highly value preaching. And I would say we even value a certain kind of preaching in recent decades, you know, more exegetical and preaching really has become kind of the pinnacle of the church service. Like if I go to an hour long worship service on a Sunday night, um, and it's all worship, the whole thing. We wouldn't call that church. We would usually say, like, I've gone to Vespers. It's a wonderful service at Bethel College, Bethel University. I've done that sometimes. And I wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to church on Sunday night. But I don't really know why that is. Because I'm, I'm, worship, I'm literally worshiping God for an entire hour. You know, whereas if I'm sitting in church on Sunday morning, and I'm, I may or may not be paying attention to what this person is speaking about. I may or may not be taking notes. I might be, my mind might be drifting. I don't know if I'm worshiping God during that sermon or um, different elements of the service. And I think that we have allowed the sermon itself to really become kind of synonymous with church. Because if people don't, if you do something a little different on a Sunday morning and it doesn't involve a sermon, I find that a lot of people feel like they didn't have church that day. And that's just really not how the early church operated. They the sermon didn't really exist in the in the early church until about the third century when um, the church was institutionalized. And so something that I, even though I love preaching, it's actually um, something I love doing or I love public speaking. I don't want that to be what I do every week. And I don't, I don't believe that that's the only, you know, the only way that we are to connect with God. And so that that's kind of part of the shift is not to say, oh, we don't need sermons anymore. Um, in fact, a, the large church that I am also a part of, I'm a part of a very large church in the Twin Cities, and the pastor is an excellent preacher and teacher. Um, I don't want him to preach less. I want him to preach more. And I actually think focusing all his energy on an hour service on a Sunday morning will actually end up making him preach and use his gift a little bit less. Like if he was in a microchurch service every other week, and he only preached two sermons a month, that would free up hours of time for him to share on a podcast, which is really kind of a form of preaching in a way, and teach a little bit more doing other things during the week. Mm -hmm. So I actually see this really actually expanding gifts in all ways. So gifts for the really skilled um, musicians, like my worship pastor friend, uh, he's a worship leader at a church in White Bear Lake. He, he was telling me, wow, something was clicking in him when I was explaining how he could you know, lead a little micro gathering in his home. And he said, man, if I wasn't planning a worship set every week, I could finally start this worship podcast I want to do where I interview local businesses. And I, he really wants to bridge the general marketplace with the church. 
he's got some mm. awesome visions, you know, and he, he really realized like, Oh my goodness, I would have like 10 extra hours a week if I wasn't planning. A yeah. And if, he, and, yeah, and if that week. was true, yeah. right. And if that was true yeah, twice so, a month, then that's a, right. I see yeah, what you're saying yeah. in terms of, um, yeah. rethinking, not just like, not just adding this on the home front for those of us who are not week in and week out, uh, professional Christians in terms of leading worship in our congregations, <laughs> but respecting and appreciating those skilled musicians and preachers while also resisting the temptation of like professionalizing the ministry. And what you're really exactly. doing is ele- elevating and celebrating the priesthood of all believers and restoring sort of the place and location of primary discipleship back to the home. So I want to continue this conversation, exactly. Grace, but we got to take a very, very brief break. We're talking about microchurch or the microchurch movement or, well, you can find it at littlelabs.fun. I'll give you that and we'll be right back. Little country church on the edge of town. People coming every day from miles around. Continuing our conversation now with Grace McJohnson. The website is littlelabs.fun dot fun. We're talking about this, this idea, this vision, this practice of micro church. Um, there is a structure and a liturgy to these gatherings, but the leadership is decentralized and the liturgy is um, different than what you might experience in the rhythm of a worship service in a facility, uh, the sign in front of which might say church. So, we're talking about how we do life together and finding rhythms of uh, of what it looks like to be the household of God in this generation, in this time and place. So I'm going to ask Grace, I'm going to ask it this way. There's a different rhythm to postmodern Western life than there was to pre-modern Middle Eastern life. And there's a different rhythm from pre-modern Middle Eastern life, which we would see reflected in the Bible, to, let's say, the Christendom rhythms of life from the 3rd to 19th centuries. So I think that that's part of the question um, behind this, is the, is the, is the rhythm part, because you're, mm. you're seeking—I think you're seeking to get us to think about a different rhythm of doing and being life together as the church. Exactly. Yes, I think um, you're right. I think that it it does relate to the more far east pace of life and the rhythm that that Jesus and his, his disciples lived in. And it's not to say like, oh, this this is it. This is the model that everyone's been waiting for. <laughs> you know, that is not at all what I think this is. But I do believe very strongly that this can be customized in so many ways. And what I love so much about it is the dependence on the Holy spirit, because Mm -hmm. when we gather in, in a small way, we each bring something small to the table, kids included, which creates pure chaos on most Sundays. But um, when we do that and we just try, we just come and say, this is my fragile little life that I am setting on the table along with yours. The spirit can move. And I love, I love that. And I think that, I think it does slow us down a little bit. I think that it, causes us to be more integrated with what we're doing in our, in our weeks. It really brings quote unquote, the realness or like authenticity of your life to the table, because you're just like, well, this is all I came up with this week. And you know, the ownership that this allows is pretty significant. Again, being a pastor's kid, I'm pretty aware of, you know, tithe and 
I remember in many of the churches my dad either started or that we were part of, the the tithe, tithing was always an issue. You know, it was like 10% of, there's a statistic, like 10% of people tithe or 15% of the whole congregation actually tithes. Well, in house churches, it's like opposite. And it, it's it's a significant difference of how much people give in a, in a home church, which is very interesting. I think it's even more significant in a home church that's structured or a micro gathering that's structured where everyone contributes spiritually. They contribute to the spiritual goods and um, and the financial goods because they own it. So if someone says to you, Carmen, this week, can you can you be ready to just say for like five minutes something that you've learned during COVID, something that God's really been, you know, tapping your shoulder with during COVID? Um, that's it. Well, you're gonna have a different week this week than if you just were planning on getting yourself out the door and getting to the church service that you're going to, you know, where you watch or listen or, and, and it might be wonderful. It might be a wonderful experience that you're having, but so that, that integration really changes things for all of us. And I do think it's more true to the, the broader view of discipleship that Jesus has for us and, and invites us into. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I think yeah, I kind of went on a I think it's one of those. Well, I think it's one of those things, Grace, where we'd like um, we'd like to be able to see into the micro church experience. So take us into, um, you know, a recent example of this um, and just kind of walk us around in what it looks and feels like. What's happening? Great. Thank you. In the in the gathering that I'm a part of, there's about seven families, which is quite large. Um, that's a larger micro church. However, not everyone comes, you know, every every time. We rotate, so somebody just simply volunteers. And three Sundays of the month, we gather. Um, on the first Sunday of every month, we go to our, our ch- large church that we are all a part of. So that's kind of a nice way that we stay connected to that larger church. And we all met there, and we, and then all the other Sundays, we gather in usually the same person's home, but sometimes it changes, which is kind of also more true to normal life. Like, Carmen doesn't always have to host dinner every time we hang out. Sometimes I get to host dinner, you know, so it's often at this one couple's house, um, but we can switch that around too. This last Sunday, um, it was a certain family's turn to kind of host or facilitate. And what that means is they kind of delegate what happens. So when you're the facilitator, you don't necessarily bring all the content. You delegate who brings the content and what maybe what that content will look like. So actually the dad, Dave and his daughter, Emma, she just got a ukulele over Christmas. She's about 11, I think. And um, they had prepared songs, which we usually don't have live instruments. We usually just um, have kids pick a worship song that we all just sing along to and we play it or we'll sing a cappella. It's very simple. Um, but they, they played they played and it was very sweet. Like neither one of them are, you know, excellent musicians. He's not a worship leader of any kind, but he's, you know, he can play guitar and sing. And it was very sweet because it was just this dad and his daughter leading us through. There was a hymn. Um, there was a more, you know, modern song. And, um, and then in between the songs, they had, they had asked us ahead of time to reflect on a testimony that had happened to us in our life, like maybe from childhood or a miracle. We, we experience that we kind of have forgotten about. And so in between each song, they would just be random people sharing. And we, we waited and had the kids share. So um, there were a couple kids that shared some 
some really cool things. Um, and, and some, a dream that somebody had that was like, I really think God was showing me after my dog died that, you know, that I can let this go and that, that he's okay. And, you know, (laughs) um, I'm laughing because it's amazing. Like what, what happens when, when you just simply ask, and there's a lot of times when kids, you know, they're quiet and they're shy and they don't want to say anything. Um, so that happened this last Sunday, but typically we will have someone say like, okay, my, my middle daughter's name is Mabel. It's Mabel's turn to pick a song. So when it was her turn to pick a song a couple weeks ago, she picked be down my vision. I don't know why she keeps picking this. It makes us look really good. Jesse and I, her parents were like, wow, you know, <laughs> we're so proud. It's one of my favorites. But- I know it's a beautiful song and I'm just, it's, it's really interesting to see what kids pick, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's okay. Whatever they do, we just kind of go with it and they get excited about that. So, um, there's usually an element of music. There's usually an element of some kind of scriptural reading or sharing, um, of a thought. It's very, it's usually short. And then sometimes we'll have the kids just go play. There's like a really big playroom and stuff. Um, and, and then the adults can continue a discussion. Uh, so it is pretty simple. There's not like a long portion of teaching or anything like that. So anyone can do it. I think that yeah, a lot of these people so are tradespeople. Yeah, they're teachers. They're they're not trained ministers, and yet here they are with with a relationship with Jesus, and that's the source of where I get any of my spiritual goods. It's not my MDiv. It's not anything but Jesus. So if they have access to that same person, they have something they can bring, and it's it's beautiful to watch. I love it. Grace McJohnson, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your experience of micro church. You guys can find more information and great ideas at little labs, L-A-B-S, littlelabs.fun. Um, Grace, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Absolutely. Appreciate being You're on listen- here. Thanks. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. So Grace has me thinking about church and the church in my home and the church in your home. What are your experiences of church? What are the varieties of fellowships of which you have been a part over the years? How would you describe church today? Do you meet and gather in someone's home? Do you think of the church where you gather as the household of believers, the family of God? I mean, are those your brothers and sisters, you know, as Jesus would describe it? These are my mother and my brothers. Those are doing the will of God. Um, You know, and then are are those the people into whose lives you are invested? Do you actually know what's happening in the lives of your brothers and sisters and spiritual mothers and fathers? Like, how connected are we to the people with whom we gather if we gather with a thousand people versus how connected would we be if we started thinking about the church in our own home or the church that gathers in a home? How might hosting church, how might hosting, planning, leading, facilitating, actively participating in worship, how might that change the way you think about worship, singing, prayer, fellowship, the study of the word, the testimony of what God's doing out there in the world. Well, I mean, if this week you knew 
that someone was going to ask you in the context of a worship service, somebody was going to ask you to bring a testimony from the mission field. I mean, you and I are missionaries, right? We are deployed as God's people out there in the world that God so loves. I mean, what if this Sunday or Saturday or whenever it is that you would gather with a group of other Christians, what if this were the week that you were expected to bring a, you know, bring a story from the mission field? What what would what would be the testimony that you would bring? I mean, I read the book of Acts and I think to myself, there's stuff going on all the time in terms of the advance of the gospel. God has poured out his spirit in and among us. And he's, you know, doing good works in and through us every single day. When are we and where are we and with whom are we bearing testimony and witness to those things? Like, when is that happening for you? What does that look like and feel like? What's the, you know, what's the church in your home or the church in a home experience like for you? Um, I'd love to hear those testimonies. I'd love to hear um, you know, how you have experienced it in the past or how you're experiencing it now, you can always text me, 877-933-2484, or email me your testimony, uh, your story at, uh, let's see, I'm Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. It's a great place to do that as well, is via email. I have a, uh, a shout out to the Lord today. My neighbor, Pete, has experienced a, like, verifiable miracle physical healing in his life. He had something going on in his brain. Um, They eventually determined that it needed to uh, be surgically repaired. Um, This has been going on now for months. We've been praying for him. The day of the surgery finally arrived. The surgeon opened up Pete's head and said to everyone, do we have the right guy? Because there's nothing wrong. It's the, there's nothing here for me to repair. Um, and so they did some follow-up tests, and Pete is physically completely restored. And I just want to bear absolute testimony to the grace of God as the great physician in healing my friend and neighbor and brother in Christ, Pete, giving God all the glory. we got another hour of mornings. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.